We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. This is Dave Debo. Today, those truths include a look at policing and other community needs. Let me stop for just a quick second. There was a um, recent article in Huffington Post that quoted former Buffalo police officer Carrie Horn. You may remember her. She was the one that uh, was removed from the force after trying to stop another officer who was using a chokehold. She was quoted in this particular article as saying, and, and maybe there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek here, but here's the quote. Joe Biden is a very busy man, so he might be forgetful. I think he should put me in charge of policy for the police and give me the budget. I don't want to put that burden on him. Coming up today in Washington, there is a summit on hate crime. It'll touch on violence and free speech, and it might even touch on policing. And there will be people who were involved in the top shooting there. Garnell Whitfield will be at the White House. Mayor Byron Brown will be at the White House. So on a day when President Biden is talking about those issues, we figured who else better to bring in but Carrie Horn, who had that quote about saying, yeah, let me do the policing. So we'll see what she has to say about that coming up in about half an hour with Thomas O'Neill White. In the meantime, though, when President Biden spoke in Buffalo after the shootings, he did so at the Delavan Grider Community Center. When the community needed food drives inside or even outside in the parking lot, that happened, obviously, at the Delavan Grider Community Center. So if we're going to talk about needs of the community, let's go to the community center. Candace Moppins is with us. She's the executive director of the all-women-led community center on Buffalo's east side. Candace, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. It's been more than four months. Are you still seeing, and I'm not talking about long-term systemic effects, but overall, are you still seeing uh, any sort of fear or tension or, or anything involving the mental health of the community at this point? The mental health um, is a huge problem in the community. Still, still. Wow. That that to the reason I ask the question is to some degree that surprises me. This is going to linger for a while. It's going to linger for a while. Um, I think that the combination of COVID and the horrific massacre that occurred at Tops just really ripped the Band-Aid off of the conditions of mental status and other uh, disparities in the community. Um, what happened at Top Supermarket that day um, in May affects the whole entire community. So we're not just talking about those uh, residents that reside um, in the area immediately surrounding the Top Supermarket, but the whole community. Because people supported that Top Supermarket mm. no matter where they lived in the city of Buffalo. You're not in the direct area around Jefferson Avenue. The community center is about three miles from the top shooting? About three miles away. But you're still seeing some confluence. Absolutely. 
um, mental health for African-Americans um, is, is, has been particularly taboo. Um, it's something that um, families um, would like to say that the cure would be to pray over it, um, you know, um, in some other form. And while, yes, you need prayer, um, it doesn't solve all of the, the mental health issues that a family, a family member or a person experiences. Um, people are experiencing uh, trauma, you know, PTSD um, for those who witnessed or uh, who were um, going shopping or shopped, even if it was before the incident happened, you know, or, um, you know, days after and months after. Um, driving down Jefferson Avenue for some people triggers them, you know, mm -hmm. just to be in tears and sobbing. Um, but people have not figured out um, that they are experiencing yet another layer of trauma and what to do about it or how to seek um, services for those issues. What does a center like yours do in such a case? How can you alleviate any of that if, if that's even possible? Well, right after we um, experienced that, um, I actually called a couple of um, social workers um, that work in the community to see how um, what they thought would be an option for getting large amounts of people to come and just what we call have a conversation. So we wanted to remove the the connotation of mental health services um, totally out of the, the wording because we know that um, African-Americans don't readily respond to those words. Um, so we wanted to call it a community conversation, what it looked like. So and essentially it would be uh, group counseling. Um, and we know that um, in, our, in our community that there is a lack of trust um, a lack of trust um, in um, other people who um, ethnic ethnicity is different from from ours, um, and so we are we know that we need to bridge that. And so one of the reasons or, or thoughts behind um, having these community conversations is to have clinicians come in um, and to have conversations, and then thereby creating trust creating um, mutual respect for one another and, and really kind of leveling the, the board and starting that way. So once you have clinicians working with people on their level, you know, in their neighborhoods, it, it, it removes some of the apprehension and it definitely builds relationships and thereby we can create and foster healing in our community. And so we've been talking about it and, and trying to figure out and find um, grant opportunities where we can actually pay the clinicians to actually do the work. And it's hard to find clinicians of color, I would imagine. Well, they found me, so okay. it's, it's not that, <laughs> it's not, it's not I, that I, hard. I've heard mental health professionals say that that's an issue. Well, I think largely yes, you know. But if you're talking about um, people coming to a community center, it kind of re it removes the stigma of having to go to a uh, quote unquote mental health or yeah. uh, you know institution. Yeah. Um, and I think that if 
people recognize that, hey, I can go and see a clinician who looks like me, who may have some uh, family history or family member who may have some of the same things that I'm dealing with, how more comfortable that would be. I also think in order to talk about what happened, it's probably necessary to talk about the more systemic forms of racism that exist on the East Side. Absolutely. That's a bigger lift, obviously. That's a huge lift. That's an onion. Okay. <laughs> Many layers there. Yes. Okay. And some of them don't smell good, I imagine. Mm-mm, not at all. All right. How, how can that be addressed? Maybe with what? I don't know. City conversations? Does it need a, a national change in focus? Talk to me about the bigger issues. Um, some of the people involved in health disparities say... You kind of have to tackle the disease a symptom at a time. Others have said that you just need to have a big conversation where more whites talk with more people of color. Where do you weigh in? I think that a lot of times um, African Americans are the last people that are asked what it is that they need in their communities. I think that people um, who often have more money and more influence tell us what we think, what they think we need in our community. Um, And a lot of times they're on the mark. But I think that um, largely because of the many disadvantages that uh, people of color have experienced, um, I guess, since we got here. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Um, it's, 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 It's multifaceted. How do you attack? Um, but I think that mental health is huge. I think mm. that that mental health, um, coupled with poverty, um, the lack of resources, um, and the, the the lack of being able to to move, I think that a lot of people think that um, services have to be outside of the city or have to be outside of the neighborhood in which the the people um, reside in. But it's a barrier. If you put in a community, even if it's not under the same building, um, that we have counseling services here, that we have recreational programming here, that we have... um, parenting um, enrichment classes, if we have healthy cooking, if we have medical, if we have dental, and make those things um, not necessarily a nine to five because we have people who are working poor who need the services, but because they have to work in whatever hours they they are, uh, that they're working, the services don't always coincide or are available with their need. And I think that that's a huge problem. Um, that could be corrected. Sounds like something for a community center. <laughs> Sounds like something for a community center. Uh, to, how much of that are you folks already doing at Delavan Grider? Well, we we do do um, the healthy cooking. We've got several partners, um, Feed More Western New York, um, Cornell Cooperative Extension. Um, and so those things are happening. you know. But we also recognize that even then they have time constraints you know, um, and so we still recognize that, you know, that that afternoon and that evening, um, there still is a need. 
you know, so we're still looking for partners that um, are able to accommodate, you know, later hours for people who are working mm. and have children. Candice Moppins is with us. She's the executive director of the Delavan Grider Community Center. As we said earlier, about three miles from the top shooting scene. Certainly she's immersed in the community. We can talk a little bit about what some of their needs are. And, and one thing I did want to touch on in that regard is all of the discussion around food. You folks run a farmer's market, don't you? Yes. So uh, KeyBank and um, the African American Food uh, Heritage Co-op and Buffalo Green um, Urban Fruits and Veggies. Alexander Wright and Allison Dahoney. That's okay. right. Um, we got together. We've been talking about it probably for a year um, prior to um, the event um, that happened over at Tops, um, and just talking about how do we, as a community, work to provide options. That's one of the things that that's missing. Um, and the the uh, massacre at Tops was just highlighted um, again the lack of options in the community for community people to have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, so the farmer's market started um, two weeks ago at the Delavan Grider Community Center, and um, it provided another option, an option that, that people in the community didn't have. I mean, there's Bidwell Parkway, there's Clinton Street right, Market, right. you know, but you need transportation to get to those. Mm -hmm. And then if you go, then you, and you get all happy and you spend your money and you get all these fruits and vegetables, how do you carry them back to your home if you're on the bus? Yeah. You know, so excellent options for fruits and vegetables, but it prevents people who, who lack transportation to get there and to get their, their, the best buck their best uh, buck for their money. So the uh, f farmer's market at the Delavan Grider Community Center is an option for people who live in the community who can walk there. Um, and, you know, if need be, they can carpool. Um, we're working on transportation so that people can actually, that live in, in the neighborhood can come and have an opportunity to select from fresh fruits and vegetables to take home and prepare for their families. When does it happen? So it's every um, other Thursday from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. All right. How's the response? The response the, the last two weeks ago was astounding. Um, people came, um, and not only that lived in the community, in the, in the immediate neighborhood, I should say, but they came from all over the community to to participate and to support our efforts. There were so many people who were like, you know, we're just so thankful and grateful to have this opportunity in our neighborhood to come in and, and purchase. Um, and and they brought their kids, and we so we have a kids corner. We do arts and craft. Um, you know, we we gave away um, some free body wash and some other free things that we received um, through organizations. Um, Rooted in Love is one of our um, partners who has adopted us, and they provide um, things for us to give away. And so it's just been um, a, a really nice. Um, it's been a nice addition um, to um, the, the community center and providing services in the community. You spoke about how it's an option that wasn't there before, and I certainly get that. But part of the reason why I asked the question what the response is is because I've heard there are still people that will not go back in that tops. Oh, absolutely. There are people who won't even go on Jefferson Avenue. Ever, do you think? Well, 
I know that there are people who will not go back. Mm. Um, yeah, I have a very hard time driving down Jefferson Avenue myself. Um, it is painful um, to to just think that someone preyed upon people. You know, when you look at it, and they were senior citizens, mm-hmm. most of them, um, hearing the horrific uh, recounts for a child that she was in um, a cooler, for the young man, Zaire, um, who um, suffered life, non-life-threatening mm-hmm. um, gunshots. But, you know, how his life is forever changed by that, you know, how... The people who were standing outside, um, their lives were ever, forever changed by racism, by hate for people just based on the color of their skin. And that leads conveniently to the broader discussion. Um, yes, we can look at the lack of food, the lack of mental health services, but is there a way to tackle that bigger problem, the massive onion you spoke of earlier? Yes. I think you just have to be honest. You know, do you want to provide the funding to adequately address the need? Mm. You know, are we going to provide, um, looking at our educational system, are we going to put the services in place that are needed so that our children um, are educated to the best of their ability? Um, do our um, service people or in the community need um, additional training when it comes to dealing with people of color? How that looks, how regardless of what people look like, what the perceived behavior of a people looks like, that we meet them with dignity and respect. There are people listening to this program that automatically shake their heads and I th- and agree with you. And I think if you ask any white person, are they racist, they're probably going to say, no, of course I'm not. But I also picture a scenario where the kind of things you're talking about need to be heard or discussed in, I don't know, generically speaking, Arcade or Darien or some of the outlying areas where attitudes are different. How do you penetrate there? I think that those conversations need to be had. I think that um, in media, oftentimes, um, black people are portrayed as savage, um, wild. Um, And I think that while some of those things happen, you know, um, we often don't know what leads people to do uh, the things that they do. But certainly um, other ethnic groups also experience yeah. those same very things. I feel like um, it's it's uh, hyper-publicized uh, about the bad behavior of some. Okay. You know, um, and so um, just highlighting the fact that, yes, we, we are different. You know, our skin color is different. Um, but not all of us, you know, that should not be the representation for all mm-hmm. of us because it most certainly isn't. You know, every every race of people um, has people who just don't make good decisions. Um, 
And I think that just having conversations, meeting people of other ethnic groups where we can discuss, you know, um, that you can see that we have uh, people of color who um, are professional people and, and people who are not, but but we are not all. And when you say meeting, you're not talking about uh, now a community discussion. You're just talking about uh, sitting around at the Golden Cup. Yes. Okay. S- sitting around, and we don't have to be the Golden Cup. It can be someplace, a, a nice restaurant in Derby. It can be anywhere, arcade, um, just to have the conversation. I think that sometimes when we um, are in our comfy little home and our comfy little neighborhood and our comfy little community, we kind of forget about other people in other mm. neighborhoods and other communities because we don't interface and we don't interact. Sure, sure. I picture that. Uh, you, you spoke of the vision that people have of a black person. Is my industry um, responsible? Critique the media. I don't know if radio... Um... Well, I don't mean specifically <laughs> us. <laughs> but in, in general, is the media doing a good job of tearing down those stereotypes or are there organizations that still reinforce them? I think there's some reinforcement um, in media regarding... Um, you know, the bad behaviors of people of color. Mm. Absolutely. I think that some of them make m- lots of money off of it, you know, and so it's, you know, it's, it's it's a slippery slope. At some of the TV stations in town, they've actually had internal debates about whether or not to include mugshots as part of their coverage because by by the mere face, by the mere picture of a person of color, here's a crime and this is the person that's charged that there's some reinforcement there. Do you think that's a good idea, not to use mugshots? I think that they should, um, if they're going to select um, a protocol, that they should stick to it no matter the color of the person's skin. Okay, cool. Makes sense. My last question usually in all of these interviews, and uh, I have, I've only had a few people say that they're not, but I really wonder, are you optimistic? I'm optimistic that there's change. I'm optimistic and I because I see it. I see people coming and just saying, This is what I need. This is what my family needs. Can you help me? And because they're coming forward and getting their needs served, that for you is enough to make you happy. It is. Cool. Candace, thanks so much for being here. I thank you and thank you for the opportunity. Candace Moppins is the executive director of the Delavan Grider Community Center. And again, their farmer's market is every Thursday in the community at the center. I, I assume the name Delavan Grider, that's where you're at? Yes. Delavan and Grider. Oh, no. So we are located 877 East Delavan Avenue. Okay. We're right across the street from the Hobson Cleaners. All right. It's 877 Delavan Avenue, farmer's market every Thursday from 4 to 7. Candace, thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Mr. Debo. Coming up, you don't have to call me Mr. That was my dad. Coming up, <laughs> Cariel Horn will be with Thomas O'Neill White. Much to discuss with her. Stay with us. This is Buffalo. What's next? Funding for the WBFO Health and Wellness Desk is provided by Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York. 
You know those dance moves you've been practicing? You know the ones. Well, they can make their debut with WBFO The Bridge at our first ever silent disco at our studios on October 1st. Whether you love hip-hop and R&B, throwback and top 40 hits, or especially WBFO The Bridge, there will be something for everyone. Join us for this COVID-cautious event with added accessibility features. For tickets and even more information, visit wned.org slash events. Support for the silent disco is provided by Project Best Life. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Buffalo Commons Charter School. Now enrolling K and first grade students for the 2022-23 school year. Buffalo Commons Charter School is a place where kids can engage with a rigorous project-based curriculum, develop strong relationships with diverse classmates, and discover a sense of purpose. Details and information at buffalocommonscharter.org or 716-222-0416. High-flying Delhi graduate Dr. Prem Sharma and his wife Kamini are wooed to the U.K. by dreams of riches and glamour, only to find themselves residing in a rural Welsh mining village. Watch Indian Doctor tonight at 10 on WNED PBS. Funding for WBFO's Business and Economy Desk is made possible by MNT Bank. Understanding what's important for 160 years. Member FDIC. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Hello, I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Today, we're talking criminal justice reform with a criminal justice reform activist and retired Buffalo police officer, Cariel Horn. Uh, Cariel, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was reading a quote you had in the Huffington Post uh, earlier this summer, uh, just a few weeks after 514, uh, in regards to violence against black people and other people of color. Uh, You proposed putting yourself in charge of police policy uh, for the Biden administration. As a former police officer, uh, how how would you hope to change that position? Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, we have the issues with the guns. Um, You know, no one needs an AR-15. No one needs any of these automatic weapons. Um, As far as I can see, for any reason, um, I still have arguments for the military having it, but I can see the military having it at this point. Um, But for regular people to have it, it makes no sense to me. And that is one of the issues as well as the mentality and as far as the um, disparate treatment. And we were having this discussion uh, a little bit, a little while ago. Um, the problem with, with violence on the east side, with, with kids and access to guns. Um, you're saying this is the real cause of violence on the east side. Um, what, are, what are solutions to this problem? Well, these kids, number one, they need something to do. They need... Um, uh, conflict resolution. They need to have um, pe- people who 
care. Don't get me wrong. You do have some organizations that are available, but obviously... It's um, not enough. It's not enough because the, the problem is still there. Um, you know, back in 2020, I reached out to um, um, Pastor Giles, and he had to be honest with me and say that the program was shut down because of COVID. When I said, Pastor Giles, these kids need help, he says the program is shut down because of COVID. I said, but they're killing and dying during COVID. And, you know, he, he wanted me to reach back out to him to see if there was something that, you know, we can do. But I didn't reach out to him because I said, you know, he should he shouldn't be shut down. But understanding that everything was shut down, it was just me being understanding what the need was and, and that it was important to not um, shut down as a parent. If we shut down, we get in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. So as a program, when you have someone who needs the help and you shut down, it's just something that has to happen because of the way the systems work. But when you have someone who needs help, I don't think that we should be shutting down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to the Huffington Post, uh, your quote, mm-hmm. if you protect black people, you protect all people. What do you mean by that? I mean that, you know, um, a lot of these issues that, like like um, Stop Asian Hate, for instance. Um, you know, you got an Asian hate bill, um, and we've been suffering from discrimination for ever. You know, since, since we've been in America or since, you know, our ancestors have been in America. Um, we have faced discrimination. So, yes, there was slavery in, in, in Africa, um, but on the level to be treated so inhumane and like even up to the point of where me as a police officer in 2006 could not stop police brutality from happening when a white officer was choking a black handcuffed man. Um, That made no sense. And then after George Floyd, the people were like, hey, you know, um, this is not right. Um, So there's a lot of things that are not right but we continue to do it, and then, I mean, as we correct ourselves along the way, um, that that's that's a good thing. But we have to face the issues as they are, not as you can't keep putting money stamp on on things. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to I wanted to uh, circle back to George Floyd in a little bit, but talk to me about Cariel's Law. I know that's not the actual name of the law, but that's kind of what we're going to call it right now. Well, I'll tell you what the actual name is. Yes, please do. Cario's Law, Duty to Intervene. Can you explain the law? Yeah. And, what, and, and, and why your name is attached to it? I know you kind of briefly mentioned it, mm-hmm. but get a little bit more into that, please. Okay. So Cario's Law is a uh, pretty much a law to, uh, for law enforcement to intervene without being punished. Um, there are six components of it. Um, also, there needs to be a national registry because if there is a officer from Buffalo, New York, you can't go to Los Angeles, California and become a police officer if you're on this registry, just like a, a sex offender registry. So um, with Cario's Law, um, you have the duty to intervene. Um, accountability, if you don't intervene, meaning police officers. Um, uh, accountability... Um, I got it down in acronyms. Well, why, why, and why, why is your name attached to it? 
It's Tell me your story. It. It's attached to it because I um, stopped Neil Mack from being choked <laughs> um, while he was handcuffed. Um, he was being choked by um, off- an officer. Officer Gregory Kwiatkowski was choking him, and, you know, when I yelled out, Greg, you're choking him, thinking whatever happened, he was still upset about because we were in, there was inside and outside. So inside of the house, he was already handcuffed, um, but Gregory Kwiatkowski was punching him in the face. And so when we got outside, then we were all going to our p- patrol vehicles, and he stopped, swung him around, and started choking him. And... I didn't know why, but what I did know was that he could have killed him. And you intervened. Yes. And you you intervened, and you were fired. And there was a lot of years of going back and forth about your pension. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, so um, to this point, I still don't have um, the benefits. Um, I have started getting a pension. Um, I've gotten two pension checks so far. Um, but to have to fight for something that is old to me, um, it's a little depressing, but it's a fight that's, that was worth having because I got the law passed. Getting back to George Floyd, 2020, did the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing protests and civil actions did that change things for you in regards uh to the passing of the of the bill and uh you getting the recognition that you felt you deserved it definitely did how so because people saw that those officers should have intervened and they did not and then they they um compared it to my case where I did intervene, um, and the person lived, and I was fired, and they knew that was not correct. So they basically um, um, wanted a law, um, duty to intervene, Cario's law, duty to intervene, whatever you want to call it, a law that um, would allow officers to stop um, the potential killing of a victim or potential harm to a victim um, if it was happening in front of them. And that is the point of Cario's law. And I was telling you it's six, it's six sections. Duty to intervene when officers impose imminent threat to citizens, accountability for officers neglecting to intervene, protection for officers who intervene, accountability for falsifying reports, impacts policy regarding termination and departmental funding, funding, um, restorative justice for retaliation of whistleblowers. So that one is what got me my pension because it goes back 20 years. Mm, Okay. All right. And you would like to see Cariel's law implemented in police forces across the country? I certainly would. And I would like to go out and do that. My cash app is dollar sign Cario, <laughs> just in case people want to just help me out um, so that I am able to um, travel. I mean, like I said, I started getting my pension, but it's still, that's work. It's work, and it's work that I want to do. Um, I do want to go. Um, actually, I will be going to Harvard um, Law School uh, on the 27th and speaking there. 
Um, actually, it'll be my fourth time because three times I did it through Zoom. This will be the first oh, time. You'll be there in, live person. in, in living color. <laughs> well, tell, yes. talk, talk to me a little bit about that, about the this Harvard work. Yes. Yeah, so actually, um, and, and that's not the, the only law school that, that I've been asked to come to. I've been to several, um, even uh, in, in person and in Zoom. Um, because law students are, uh, or, or law professors, uh, are interested in having their students learn um, from someone who actually not only went through a situation, um, but who also wrote a law and and had it passed. So it's just to show that, you know, um, how different situations, just like back in the day, um, black people couldn't go to schools with white children. Um, but that was a law. At some point, it was overturned. So it's just to show that, you know, when there is wrong, how which the steps you can take to create change. And that's why Biden should have me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, once again, you are listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and I am here talking criminal justice reform and a host of other things with retired Buffalo police officer and criminal justice reform activist, Cariel Horn. Talk to me, Cariel. Uh, about the community around the Jefferson Avenue tops. It's reopened and people are trying to get back to their routines and as resilient as black people are, as we have been since day one, is there a fear that still persists, an anger that still persists over 514? Um, I think that <clears throat> overall we are loving we we are a loving community overall i mean there's of course um things that we would all like to change um but overall black people have been resilient and have been um steadfast and loving and that is what i found in in the community um i still have not been able to go into tops i did attempt to go and um for for me Dealing with trauma, seeing um, seeing things on the police department, I lost it when it was time to go into TAPS. I basically I walked in the parking lot and all I could see was that video of of that racist killer coming into um, our neighborhood and just shooting people, and that's all I could see. And so I felt like I was having a heart attack. And I saw Betty Jean Grant. Um, who's a community advocate and activist? Um, yeah, we love we of, love Betty Jean here. <laughs> well, well, founder of Women, we are Women Warriors, and I also am a woman warrior. But um, I saw her, and because I'm one of the guys that that's, um stands over there, um, Greg, he was going to walk in with me. But when I saw her, I said, you know what? She's a woman warrior. I'm going to walk in with her. And I walked in, and I just kept crying. And the TOPS employee was the one who was trying to come for me. But because Betty Jean Grant wanted me to see the memorial, I wanted to be respectful of that. So I, I did look at it, and I said, I have to go. I have to go because I just couldn't—I I could not um, walk past the, the front because it just was too overwhelming to me because to hear all of the different stories, to be there that day, to see the bodies— it was just overwhelming. So for me, who has, I have withstood a lot of trauma, I don't understand how people just got back into it. 
and it kind of angered me because, like, for my 97-year-old father who shops there, he wanted the tops to be open. He went in there. He's like, oh, it's beautiful. So I'm happy for people like him who want it open. It's convenient. He wants to remain um, independent. But for me, just knowing, you know, from a corporate standpoint that they're just, they want to get back to business because when they get back to business, they make money. That really, I really can't get over that. Mm-hmm. And so I have not been back in there yet. But it is, it's important to have a grocery store there. I think that it's important for, like I said, for people like my 97-year-old father who want to to maintain their independence. Um, so it's important to have it there. But because we do have a system where we can have um, um, racist killers come into our neighborhood and just kill us at the drop of a dime, I don't know what has changed as far as that is concerned. What's to stop the next person from coming in? To do the same thing. How would you address that? How would you how would you speak to law enforcement? What would what what are some of the things that you would given given what you've been through, what you've seen, um what would you say to local law enforcement, state law enforcement for uh, preventative well, measures? <clears throat> well, it's not even just for law enforcement. First of all, we need to have more than one grocery store that um uh, appeals to someone, you know, like we mm-hmm. need more grocery stores. We do have other grocery stores, um, but for that area, um, especially Jefferson Avenue, which um, has a um, big um, a historic present for black people, um, I think that that um, it's important to have that, but more options. If we have more options, then that will alleviate someone just targeting the one store that a lot of black people go to. Mm -hmm. And I mean, not just black people, but the point is we're talking about the racist violence um, to black people. Um, And the reason why is because they targeted that one grocery store. Mm -hmm. And you said you have not been back into the store? Only when that day when, when I tried to attempt to go in and it was just too overwhelming. And I, and it wasn't just uh, what I was feeling. I think I was just taking on what everybody else was feeling, which is a, a gift and a curse that I have. Um, it was it was knowing that they were back to business as usual, and these people still were not totally healed, but because they needed to get back to work, they were at work. You've dealt with a lot of trauma <clears throat> in yes. your life. And, you know, obviously 514 has been a traumatic experience for a lot of people. Have you, how have you dealt with the trauma? Is there any words of wisdom you can impart on someone who may be listening right now and who is, who's going through it? Well, thankfully I have a loving community behind me. I have a loving family. Um, and I had uh, a loving upbringing as far as family and my mother and father are concerned. Um, so you just really need to have that support behind you. Um, you know, I wouldn't go to counseling for a long time, and God knows I needed it for a long time. So um, You and me both. <laughs> so I wouldn't go, but once I um, went and I realized, because the stigma behind it, you know, mm-hmm. um, like being on the police department, 
it's really kind of like um, the mentality of some of the officers is like um, a high school mentality where <clears throat> they want to shame you into doing what they want. Peer pressure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you have peer pressure um, um, as a teenager, you know, they can say, oh, yeah, the kids have peer pressure. But when you have it as an adult, um, which is like even why I had to write a law. Why would I have to write a law that other officers can step in and intervene without being punished because of the peer pressure? So when we talk about that, you know, our kids are always being punished for the peer pressure. But when it comes to adults, the adults just get away with it because of whatever reason. And is that especially pre- prevalent in law enforcement? <laughs> it's it's prevalent in the criminal justice system, period. Because, you know, you have um, disparate treatment for our black kids as, um, as opposed to um, some of the white kids. And, you know, some people just don't want to make it a black and white issue. It is what it is. Racism is a black and white issue. So we have to deal with it and quit trying to tippy-toe over what is going on. And then we can come up with solutions, real solutions. And once again, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Tom Sonia White, and I am here talking the criminal justice system with former Buffalo police officer. Retired. Retired, excuse me. <laughs> retired Buffalo police officer, criminal justice reform activist and survivor, Cariel Horn. Kids and guns. I wanted to get back to this. It's it's a problem. It's a problem. It's it's plaguing some of our neighborhoods in the city of Buffalo. And we're just, where 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 does the criminal justice system fit into this narrative? How do they how are they hampering this issue? How can they help? How can they provide solutions? Okay, so um, they have programs um, for youth who get in trouble in the criminal justice system. Um, but I don't think that it's being utilized like it should be. Um, you have these kids out here with guns, and they go high-capacity guns, AR-15, all kinds of guns, off kinds. You of know, guns. not y- yeah. Yep, they're killing, dying, going to jail. Now, you have the the programs um, like Snug, um, who are dealing with some of the children. But like I told you, they had to take a pause in 2020. So then, first of all, these high-capacity weapons are not good for kids, adults, or anybody else because I don't understand what the, pro- what the purpose is other than killing a lot of people, and they are doing that. Now, as far as the kids in the, the hood that are getting these guns and that are going to jail, um, they are not getting to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is these kids rather be caught with a gun than without because of the mentality. Nobody's dealing with the mentality. You, you have these kids going to school. The school recognizes that these kids have issues. What do they do? They suspend them. What good is that doing? If you recognize that they have an issue, why are they not put in the hands of an uh, adult who is going to guide them to success? The only mm-hmm. road to be is to success, but... The road is from school to the pipe, um, the pipeline, the school, school to, prison. to prison pipeline. Exactly. Yes. yes. And 
that is a problem. Because if you recognize that these kids have a problem in schools, why are they going down this prison pipeline? Why are you, as an adult, you recognize the problem, get them the help that they need, but instead you send them home? What do they do when they go home? They go They're not out. actually in home, actually at home. They can be wherever, mm-hmm. but then they start to get in trouble and start going into the justice system. Why? Because us as adults, we failed them. You recognized that they had an issue and you didn't do anything about it. You took a pause. Not because of COVID, but just because, you know, you got other kids to deal with. You don't want to deal with that. Well, that's a problem. So if I, as a parent, did that to my child, then then, um, child protection would be involved. Why is it not involved with the schools? But the point is, yes, as parents, we have our, we have, um, we have to have our responsibility for our children. The schools have to have their responsibility. The criminal justice system has to have responsibility. So if they have a program to reform these kids so that they don't go to jail, then why are they not utilizing it? Mm-hmm. Is it is it keeping the kids instead of suspending them, instead of you know saying you can't come back to school for X amount of days? Yeah, is, but give them something of, to do. Is part of, well is part of the solution keeping them in school, having them maybe not exactly in class, but keeping them on school grounds, still a part of the school society. Well, if you have someone that's causing an issue, you take them out of that environment Mm -hmm. and put them into an environment that they need. Mm -hmm. They may need counseling. Some kids, they don't do well with just sitting still. Yeah. I have a grandson who just moves all the time. And and the thing about it, he's a kid. Yeah. He should be. They move, yeah. Right, right. He should be. But in school, they're like, no, stop, stop. Like, now you're a problem because you're moving. But as we see as black people, you're a problem if you're sleeping. Look at Brianna Taylor, right? So you're a problem if you're driving. You're a problem if you're doing anything. So my thing is stop looking at us as monsters and just deal with us as human beings. Human beings. As as, look at me as a as a white woman. Then maybe I might get treated better. You think if I was a white woman and I stopped Neil Mack from um, being choked, that I would have got punched in the face? We would have had parades for you for the last 15 years. Okay, well, I'm going to go white face. <laughs> I want my parade. I want it. I want it now. Um, well, we've got just a few more minutes here. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about what's happening um, in D.C., Today, uh, President Biden is hosting a summit to address hate-motivated violence and, uh, you know, fostering unity. Uh, among those in attendance is Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown and Garnell Whitfield Jr., uh, the son of Ruth Whit- Whitfield, who tragically lost her life in 514. If you were there, if you were in attendance, or if you had uh, President Biden's ear, what, what would you tell him? We have to get to the root of the problem. Because you have to deal with racism as it is. Um, I'm not sure if the KKK has been deemed as a hate group yet, but the point is— It's more is, than just 
the KKK no, these no, no. days. <clears throat> I'm just making the point about the KKK. Uh-huh. But of course, we know it's more yeah. right now. Mm-hmm. But it, had we dealt with that mm. way back then, we wouldn't even have what we have now. So we have to deal with the issues as we have them right now. And that's basically calling a spade a spade, just like they used to say back in the day, right? It is what it is. Let's deal with it for what it is. And these guns, when you say get these guns off the street and they, they um, villainize our children, villainize the gun makers, villainize the, the lawmakers who allow these guns to be on the street, villainize... Um, if the president doesn't do anything, I'm sorry, President Biden, but hey, we got to villainize you too. These guns mm-hmm. are killing us. And, you know, these, these people with these guns are killing us, but they're allowed to have these guns because there they are not laws to prevent them from having these high powered weapons that we don't need anyway. We don't need them. Mm-hmm. Are you confident in the president's push towards? towards addressing hate-motivated violence, fostering unity. What did you make of his, uh, when he when he came to Delvin Grider Community Center, uh, what did you make of his speech? Well, to tell you the truth, I was too busy outside of Delvin Grider um, <clears throat> causing good trouble. Yes, I saw you there. I was actually trying to get one of the, um, the, the living survivors um, um, into the into the meeting she had a um the gun put to her head where she still has um a burn mark in her head um but thank god he didn't kill her but she will live with that for the rest of her life and she was not on that list so i was outside trying to get her in which she did get in um so real quick can you can you repeat that story because Mm -hmm. uh we've had other people on telling that story but just a, a, a brief refresher okay. of, of that lady's horrific story, please. Okay. So um, I, I won't mention her name only because I don't have permission, but um, she basically, she and her daughter were in the store shopping. And when the, um, the domestic racist terrorist came in um, and was shooting people, she tried to shelter her daughter. And she let her daughter know. Listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shelter you with my body. Um, I'm gonna take the most of the, the the shots, but you're gonna feel something. And basically, she was saying her goodbyes to her daughter. This guy came over after she saw him kill Aaron Salters, who was the um, retired police officer and doing security there. After she saw him kill him, because she said Aaron tried to save them by covering her up. Uh, either way, she was saying her goodbyes, and her daughter was like, no, 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 no. And she was begging for the life of her and her daughter to this guy who put this hot gun to her head. And then he, he she said that he said, well, he wasn't going to shoot her. I forgot what exactly the words, but then he shot someone and killed someone else. It's a truly, truly horrific story. Um, and so you were trying to get her into yeah she was not on the they said she wasn't on the list i'm like what do you mean she's not on the list like she's a living survivor like i mean living survivor but same same word um a living victim Mm -hmm. surviving victim um so she should be in there her story should be heard 
And so I was like really at the point of saying, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to get arrested if you don't get in there. Because, yes, um, all of the families are affected, especially the ones, the families of the ones who died, but she actually experienced it. Mm -hmm. She and her 14-year-old daughter. And so you were out there, as you said, advocating, advocating, (laughs) causing, causing good trouble. trouble. Um, Well, I want to, Carol, I want to thank you again for being here. Anytime. Uh, Your, 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 your own personal story is, is important. And I want to ask what, what's next for you? Well, I have a book coming out, like it should have been out years ago, but. I have a book Do tell. <laughs> I, I, um, hopefully by the end of the, the year, it'll be out. Um, Cario's Law, I would like to make it a national law. Um, so I'm going to be working on that. Um, if anyone wants me to come speak for, you know, I would, I would love to do that. Is, I would love to do is that. Is there anything you can divulge about the book? I know you do, maybe don't want to. Give, a, well, give the whole thing, but, you know, if there's some tidbits that, that you want to get out there. Well, it's basically my experience from the police department, like from growing up to the police department to now. Um, and, it, and it keeps going on and on, like the Energizer Bunny, because so many things keep happening. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and it's about solutions. It's about creating solutions, because we should not have all of these problems that we have. Because when I was younger, we had a lot to do. So I don't know why those programs stopped, but they should continue now. What made you want to be get into law enforcement? Um, I loved children. I wanted to work with children. I mean, I was only 20 myself, but wow. Um, and I needed a job. I had two children, so I needed a job. Would you advise someone else to get into that profession? Of course. Why? Well, I mean... The experience um, overall is great. I loved working with the people. I love the community. Um, and now, you know, I can see the bigger picture of, you know, um, how if the administration is a good administration, how it could be a great, a great thing for us all, meaning officers and citizens. And when you have, when you have people who want to do want to get into law enforcement for the reasons that you wanted to you know that change can come from within it definitely can but you don't have to be a police officer you don't have to be a politician you just have to be a person who wants change and you can create the change excellent excellent well cariel we've got about a minute left i want to thank you again for being here um again you're listening to buffalo what's next uh, I'm here with retired police officer, criminal justice reform activist, and survivor, Carrie O'Horn. Um, one more thing? Yes, one more thing. October 28th, I'm having a community celebration for everyone who has stood up with me through all of these years. It'll be at Johnny B. Wiley, 6 to 10, on October 28th, which is a Friday. Excellent. And thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next, our daily discussion program on race, education, and related issues following the top shooting on May 14th. 
You are listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. Thank you for listening. <laughs>